seats. Chapter 9, we're working through our series, the whole book of Joshua. It'll be really helpful if you've got a Bible or some sort of device which can bring that up. Luke, turn to Joshua chapter 9. As you turn to that, I'm going to flick a, a picture here up on the screen. I wonder what you see. First of all, first impressions. What do you notice in our picture here? Things aren't always quite as they seem. So first impression, first few moments, you might think, oh, there's a sheep. Take a closer look. It's anything but a sheep. Use an old phrase. Here we've got, look at the face, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sheep in a field, pretty harmless, I think. A wolf in sheep's clothing in the midst of a whole field, field can cause a lot, a lot of damage. And Jesus used this image. He used this image in Matthew chapter 7 when he said these words. He was speaking to the church. He was speaking to believers, people like us here this morning. And he said these words, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. People aren't always as they seem. And one of the great lies, a lie that flows from the devil, is deception. And sometimes people appear and they say the right things and they look the right way. They even sound spiritual, but they are extremely dangerous because they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And so as we think about this, we think about it in life in the church, we think about our own personal relationships, we think about friendships, we need to be careful. We can't be people who are naive. We can't be people who are totally gullible. We need to use spiritual insight we need to look to the Lord and we need discernment to make wise decisions. Because if we don't, there can be long-term consequences. That's the lesson of this chapter we're about to read, Joshua 9. People aren't always as they first seem. And the consequences of being naive, the consequences of not turning to God and looking for his insight, looking for his discernment and spiritual wisdom can have a dreadful effect. We've had military success in chapter 8 when they defeated the people of Ai. And straight after this chapter, straight after the military success, there comes this humiliating failure for the children of Israel. They're actually outsmarted. They're defeated not by a strong, powerful army. They're actually defeated by enemies who come against them dressed up in fancy dress. Sheep are wolves, should I say, in sheep's clothing. So let's read Joshua chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who are beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, 
from a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sion the king of Heshbon and to Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet with them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was warm when we, it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. This is the key verse in the chapter. Let me read the end of verse 14 again. But did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Terapath, Beroth, and Kirath Jerem, but the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water to the house of my God. <coughs> they answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty, that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do, do to us, or to us do it. So we did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Amen. <coughs> what this chapter really centers around, it centers around deception. The land, the land of Canaan, the promised land that God had given to his people, he had promised it centuries before to Abraham. This land was not made up of one nation one people to overcome. It was actually made up of lots and lots of nations. So you had a group of people who lived in Jericho. You had another nation who lived in Ai. And they had these cities and different nation states all throughout the land of Canaan. And normally what happened is these people would fight against each other. But verse 1 actually tells us that they join together. They unite as an army to fight against Joshua and the children of Israel. That's often what happens. The enemies of God unite together to fight against his people. Now, although all the other groups of people joined together, it was one nation, and they didn't take part. 
they came up with a completely different tactic, and that was the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites lived about 20 miles away from where the children of Israel are at this point, near Jericho. About 20 miles away is where they lived. And they realized that they were probably next. People had come, the Israelites had come, they had destroyed Jericho. They had destroyed Ai under the instruction of the Lord to completely destroy these pagan, heathen, sinful nations who lived in the promised land. And they were going to be next. And they'd seen what had happened. And there was no way they could outmuscle, outthink, in terms of military strategy, the children of Israel, who the living God was on their side. And so they decided to come up with a completely different tactic. They came up with a very cunning plan. They couldn't outfight them, but perhaps they could outsmart them. And so instead of waiting, waiting there in anticipation for the Israelites to come and attack them, they would go instead and meet the Israelites in their camp, and they would travel off to speak to Joshua. And as they did it, we picked this up from the reading. They came disguised in their fancy dress costumes and they pretended to be people not who lived there in Canaan, but who lived in a far off land. And they came in their worn out clothes. They'd been on a long, long journey, or so it seemed. And they came with moldy bread that had been warm, as they said, when they started their journey. But look at it now. It's taken us a long, long time to travel here. In fact, They'd only traveled 20 miles up the road. And what they came and they did, they said, we come from a long distance, can we make a covenant with you, a peace treaty? That's really what they wanted, that you will look after us. You won't attack us, and you won't destroy us. Now, God had given the children of Israel a warning in Deuteronomy 7. Back when Moses was still alive, when Moses was still the leader of people, he said, you're going to go into the promised land, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to completely destroy the people who live there. These are pagan, heathen nations. If you let these people live they will have a spiritually detrimental impact and influence upon you. The children of Israel will be tempted to go after their gods and to live in exactly the same way. And so you are to completely wipe these people out so that God's people can live alone in the promised land. You're not to make any covenants. You're not to make any priest treaties with the people who live in the land of Canaan. Other nations outside the borders, the boundaries, that's okay. But not for the people, the pagan nations who live in Canaan. And these people, the Gibeonites, were obviously aware of this. And so they come pretending to be people who live outside the borders, outside the boundaries, and they come seeking a peace treaty. Now, at first, the Israelites are actually cautious. Look at verse 7. They start to ask the right questions. But when the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? And so they have a few, maybe, maybe you're not exactly who you seem to be. Maybe you are people pretending to be somebody else. But they come back. And everything they say seems very plausible. They're plausible answers. And so as Joshua and the leaders look, these people, they sound right in the things that they say. And they look right. It looks as if they have come from a very far distance. And they even sound spiritual. Look at verse 9. They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We have heard about your God. And we want to make a peace treaty with you because we've heard all about your God and the wonderful things that he has done. So they sound right and they look right as well. So Joshua agrees to a covenant of peace. And so what Jericho couldn't do with its high walls... 
And what Ai in the last chapter couldn't do with their mighty soldiers, the Gibeonites are able to accomplish with the deceit from their tongue. Now, you might be sitting there this morning thinking, you know what, I actually quite admire the Gibeonites. It's a genius idea. You know, they knew that they were next in line and they were going to be wiped out. And so they're, they're putting their, their powers of, of, of thinking and clever ideas to work here. And, and actually, they've got a peace treaty that will spare their lives. We've got to admire the genius of what they've done. But as I said, you've got to be careful here. Look at verse 4. This is the key here. Verse 4 says, They on their part acted with cunning. Everything they did was a pack of lies. Everything they said to the children of Israel, even though how clever it is, even though how smart you might think their plan is, it was deceit. And what is it? Their lies. It's sin. Let's not admire them for their deception. What does the Bible tell us? It says this in John 8. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a deceiver. So where did this cunning come from? Where did this deception? It comes from the father of lies. It comes from the one who is the deceiver. It comes from Satan himself who wants to have an influence, a bad influence upon the Lord's people. So let's not admire them for their sin. And it all happened because there actually was a major failure on the part of the children of Israel. Let me read verse 14 again. Well, the end of verse 14. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. That's the failure of God's people in this situation. They did not ask the counsel of the Lord. We know that other verse in the New Testament says, pray without ceasing. What's the point of that? That you, every single moment of every day you're praying? No, but in everything throughout the day, from the things that might seem small to you to the things that might seem big, we are to be a praying people. We are to take it to the Lord, to seek his wisdom, to seek his counsel, to seek his guidance. And never in this point do they seek the Lord. And so there's a major failure on the part of the leaders of God's people. They fail to seek guidance because they failed to pray about it. Now, before we criticize them, before we think, what a silly mistake, let's just pause there. And let's examine our own lives. How often are we guilty of exactly the same? We go through life and we make decisions because it sounds right and it looks right. But things aren't always as they seem. And people aren't always as they seem. And life is full of deception and lies. And often we do things, and looking back with hindsight, we go, what a fool I was. How I was sucked into that situation. How I trusted that person. And how often in our life we make decisions on what we think is our common sense and the logic as it appears in front of us. And yet we think we can get through life trusting our own ability to make decisions. We don't need the Lord because we're wise enough and we're clever enough. And do we pray without ceasing? Far from it. In fact, we only occasionally pray. Maybe if there's a really major issue in our life, we'll pray for guidance for that. But so much, even at the start of the day, the start of a day, do we say, Lord, in everything I do today, lead me, guide me, give me spiritual wisdom. 
to make wise decisions in everything that I do. We often fail because we did not ask counsel from the Lord. That was the failure. And like most failures in life, there are consequences. There's a number of consequences for God's people in this chapter. The first one is disobedience. God had told them what to do. They weren't to have a peace treaty with people who lived in their midst. And so they disobeyed God, and disobedience of God is sin. And instead of destroying their enemies, they were going to have to dwell with them throughout all the future generations. Now, some people probably at this point think, well, these people lied to them. They weren't honest. They weren't up front. And although you've agreed a covenant with them, a peace treaty with them, it was all based on deception. So actually what the children of Israel should have done, they should have sorted out there and then, ignored the peace treaty, and just wiped them out anyway. But then they would have broken their word. Then they would have gone back against the covenant that they'd made in the sight of the Lord, as the chapter tells us. And two wrongs don't make a right. And so actually the good thing in this chapter is even though they made a mistake at the start, not seeking the counsel of the Lord, they were faithful and they honored the covenant they made because they had made it in the sight of the Lord. God's people need to be faithful to their word. Two wrongs don't make a right. But there was still disobedience on the part of the children of Israel. That was the first consequence. The second consequence was the danger they put themselves in. These enemies, this pagan, heathen, godless group of people would now live in the midst of the children of Israel in the promised land. And it wouldn't just be a danger for the people there and then. This would continue for the next generation and the generation after that. And the generation after that would have this pagan group of people living in their midst. And all they can do is, and what they do do at the end, is they make them the slaves, they get them to work for them, but they'll never be able to remove that danger that exists in the midst of the land, this danger that God had warned them against. And the third consequence, so disobedience, and they had this danger, the third consequence is there's a disunity. Because the people grumble, look at the end of verse 18, it says, then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. And so the rest of the children of Israel, they're really unhappy. They're really unhappy that these, this peace treaty has been put in place. How could our leaders make this mistake? How could they fall for this deception? And so there's disunity. And what has happened is the congregation, the ordinary people and the children of Israel have lost respect for their leaders and they're angry. And the children of Israel would never fully conquer the promised land. Yes, they would control the promised land, but they would never fully conquer it because there would be this pagan nation living right in the midst of them. And because of their mistake, because of their failure, they would have to live with the consequences down through the generations. Now, can sin, can the wrong actions that we do be forgiven? Absolutely. That is the incredible message of the gospel. That's the incredible message of the Bible. Though our sins may be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. 
We thought about this last week as we worked our way through chapter 7 and 8. And one of the points last week is sin is not the end of the story. And so when the children of Israel sinned in chapter 7, it wasn't the end of the story because we have a God who is able to forgive. We have a God who is able to redeem even our mess and our failures. And that's the incredible message of the gospel. So as we sit out here this morning, and I stand here, we look at our own lives and we look at the mess and the sin and the failures of our own lives. Those times when we have disobeyed God those times when we've made foolish decisions because we haven't sought the counsel of the Lord. And we look at our own lives and we see the consequences and the mess. And the wonderful message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is able to cover any of our sins. And there's forgiveness that we find in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah for that. No matter what we have done, there's forgiveness found in Christ Jesus. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ, there's no condemnation. Nobody can ever separate us from the love of God. Failure isn't final with Christ. Praise the Lord for that. But the reality is, even though we have forgiveness here in this life and forgiveness that will have an impact upon all eternity, sometimes we're left with the human consequences. So think of the relationship that's entered into because it didn't follow the counsel of the Lord and there's mess and there's sin in there. Can there be forgiveness? Absolutely. Can God redeem messed up situations? Absolutely. But sometimes there's still some human consequences that linger on throughout our life. And we need to think about this, that we need to be wise because we want to avoid these situations as much as we can because still, as we live here on earth, there is the fallout, the consequences. Was God still able to use the children of Israel? Was it the end of the story because they made the mistake? Of course it wasn't the end of the story. God was still able to use them, to use them in mighty ways. But still through the generations, they would live with the consequence of failing to seek the counsel of the Lord. We want to finish off finally here this morning at looking at the lesson of this story. This is an ancient story. It's an historical account of something that happened thousands of years ago. Is it relevant for us? Are there any lessons? I hope maybe some of the pennies have dropped here this morning. Yeah, there, there is lessons that we can learn here in this story. What does the Bible teach us about the devil? I've mentioned this already this morning. The devil is a deceiver. Sometimes he comes to attack us like a roaring lion. But sometimes, often in fact, the devil comes to deceive us like a serpent. Think of the Garden of Eden. The devil is a deceiver. And what does he want to do in the lives of people like us, people who follow the one true God? He wants to trip us up. And he wants to deceive us. And he wants to, us to disobey God. And he wants us to fall into sin. And he wants us to experience the consequences of our failures. The devil is a deceiver. And so we must be alert. We must be on our guard. That is why Jesus warned the church, that verse from Matthew 7, I put up on the screen right at the start, he warned about wolves in sheep's clothing. What was the context? The church, false teachers, people who come in, they sound right, they look right, but they're from the devil, deceivers. And what is their primary objective? To deceive and destroy places like this. 
And so we need to be on our guard. And things aren't always as they seem, and we can't always see. So we actually need a supernatural wisdom to make wise decisions. And so we need to seek the counsel of the Lord. Here's the thing about Christians, where it should be the thing about Christians. Christians are very accepting. Christians are very welcoming. We're very gracious. And we're very trusting. Now, I've said those things. I hope that is true, because it should be. We should be, as individuals, as a church, we should be very accepting of people who come in. We should be very welcoming, very gracious, trusting, open arms. It's the kind of gospel people we need to be, because that's what the gospel is. The gospel welcomes people. It's gracious. But what does that actually make us very open to? Deception. People who come in and use that and abuse that as well. Why do you think the Gibeonites came to the children of Israel to make a a covenant? Because they knew that once the children of Israel had made the covenant, they would keep it. That they wouldn't ignore it and wipe them out. Because God's people would be faithful to the word that they had made. And so they were open to that kind of deception. So let's think through a few different situations here. Let's start with the one that that Jesus warned us against. False teachers who could come into a church situation. They may sound genuine at first, but they're used by the devil to destroy. So people who come in, this happens in the early church. You read through the epistles and the apostle Paul's writing, dealing with this situation. People who came in, they gained an influence. They gained supporters within a church. And once they had influence, well, they could influence the church in the wrong way. And sadly, that happens a lot to churches. Churches that go off a biblical reel, what has happened? False teachers have come in, they've gained influence, they've deceived people, and then they do damage, spiritual damage, because they start to preach and teach things that don't line up with the pages of Scripture. And so as we bring people in to positions of authority, when we give people positions of things to do, do we just do it on a human logic? They sound right, they look right, it all seems common sense to me. Or do we stop? Do we pray about it? And do we seek, Lord, show us your way? Is this the kind of person we want and we're going to use here? Let's bring it down into maybe a more everyday kind of situation, even bringing people into membership in a church. It's an important thing to bring people into the body of church. We come with open arms. We are welcoming to people. But let's not be naive. Let's not be gullible in those kind of things. Now, it may be the exception rather than the rule, but there are people who come in not with pure motives, not with right motives, but actually people who will do damage in a church fellowship. And so even when we bring members here into church, we give a couple of weeks' notice before a meeting, and what do we say? You know, here's some people, encourage you to pray about it. How often do we actually stop and pray? And say, Lord, lead me, guide me. Show me anything that, if there's something we need to know, show it to us. So the decisions are made in the counsel of God, not just based on what we think, our common sense, our logic, as far as we see it as well. One of the things we mentioned last week is we have um, some space for new deacons here in this church. 
Actually, next Sunday, just as a reminder, is the last Sunday for putting in nominations of people you think would be wise to serve in this very practical, very um, important role here in the church. So we want you to think about people who would be suitable for that role. But don't just think about it. Pray about it and seek the counsel of the Lord because we want the right people who are a benefit. We don't want people who are going to come in and cause harm to the church and cause division and cause disunity. So don't just ignore it and go, oh, I don't want to make you know, the wrong thing here. No, engage in this. Think about it. Pray about it. Approach people. Seek God's leading. Seek God's counsel. And anything that we do as a church, so if a members meeting come up as we make decisions, seek the counsel of the Lord. Don't trust what you see or what you hear because we often make mistakes. Let's work this into our own lives as well. Let's think about marriage. Big decisions to be made. You're going to enter into a covenant relationship with, you know, maybe you're single and you're thinking about marriage, okay? And you're going into that situation. Sometimes people aren't always what they seem to be at first. They may look right. They may sound right. But sadly, there's been too many marriages where people come up, this person's not the person I thought they were. And so entering into those kind of relationships, don't just judge it on what you see, what you hear, what you feel. Seek the counsel of the Lord. Lord, guide me, lead me, show me, stop it if there's something not right here. Think about friendships. You want the right friendships, friendships that are beneficial, not harmful. Lord, lead me guide me. Let's think about employment, even business. People you're going to enter into, maybe in a, a business thing or something like that there. Pray without ceasing. God, lead me, guide me, show me your will, and if it's not right, stop it. Work in this situation. What's the mistake most of us make in our daily lives? We don't seek the counsel of the Lord. And often it works out fine. But there are times in each of our lives, why did I make that mistake? Do you know why we didn't make that mistake most of the time? Because we didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. As we finish here this morning, I want to put some verses, one couple of verses together up on the screen here. These are very, very well-known verses. Probably everybody in the room knows these verses. But I wonder how often we actually take heed of the verses that are going to go up on the screen. For some of you, will have this as a little framed picture in your house, nice little verse on the wall, maybe a magnet on your fridge, maybe a bookmark in your Bible as you sit here this morning. But how often do we take this overly familiar verses and put it into practice? Taken from the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs, let's unpack this very briefly as we close. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. We can all agree with that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now let's think about the next line. And do not lean on your own understanding. Now there's a challenge. Because all of us think our, our own understanding is the best understanding around. We're wise enough to make decisions. We're wise enough to make the decisions in our life. Because we can look and we can hear. And we can use common sense. And we can make the decisions in our life. But it's not what it says. It says don't lean on your own understanding. No matter how good your own understanding is, don't lean on it. 
Don't trust your own understanding. Do you know why? Because you're not an almighty, all-knowing God who knows the hearts and minds of people and the reality of situations. Because situations aren't always as they seem and people aren't always as they seem. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't trust it. Don't trust your understanding. But here's what you do instead. In all your ways, acknowledge him, the Lord, and what will he do? He will make straight your paths, or as the King James puts it, he will direct your paths. He will guide you. He will give you the guidance that you need as you work your way through life. In all your ways, do we do that? No, maybe the big decisions. We'll pray to God, Lord, guide me. But it actually says, in all your ways, everything you're doing, acknowledge God. Pray without ceasing. Those small things, big things. And he will do what? He'll direct some of your paths? No. He will make straight your paths, all-inclusive there. He will guide us. He will lead us. Why? Because he knows all things. So let us be people who seek the counsel of the Lord. We all know these verses. But how often do we heed them? And how often do we make these mistakes in our life which have consequences that we need to live with? Even yes, they can be forgiven, but we have to live with the outworking of these mistakes in our lives. So whether you're starting off in life and you're a teenager here, and you've got big decisions like jobs and futures and relationships all ahead of you, or you're at the latter stages of life, this applies to us. In all the small things, in everything we do, what are we to do as the Lord's people if we are believers? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't trust it. In all your ways, in all my ways, acknowledge the Lord. And what will he do? He'll make your path straight. He'll lead you and he will guide you. Do we need that guidance? Do we need that direction? Absolutely. So let's look to the Lord. Let's pray as we think about this.